namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami Getting close to the end of this chapter called The Fourth Exit Point from the Cycle, and we had uh, covered the first five of the seven um, uh, Sapurisa Dhamma, the qualities of a well rounded uh, or good, good hearted, good natured person. So the next one on that list is Paris Anutta. So Parisa is a group. So the uh, Buddha Parisa means the community of the uh, of Buddhist uh, disciples or the students, followers of the Buddha. Paris Anutta. Please join us, Ajahn. Parisanyuta, this means knowing the group of people that we are currently relating to, the company we are keeping, and the context within which we are meeting each other. Are we with our parents? Are we visiting a school? Are we in our own country, or in a place where we don't know the language? Are we in the role of teaching a group of students? Are we one patient on a hospital ward? Are we putting our children to bed? Who are we with? Who are we with, and what is the relationship between us all? Now, Parisanyuta is knowing the locale, the people, the language, to communicate skillfully, just as the Buddha described in the passage quoted back in chapter one. Quote, if one varies the terminology as one travels through different regions, continually bearing in mind how these various terms are applied to the same household object, then all divisive bias will be avoided. So that's from uh, Sutta number 139 in the Majjhima Nikaya, which is a very uh, helpful way of uh, reflecting on use of language, use of terminology, and so on. So this is, uh, again, the, as I was saying before, this is all to do with a, a mindfulness and full awareness and appreciation of the context that we're in, what's the situation. Um, so the parisa uh, is um, that, uh, along with... Uh, the right amount of things for matanyuta, the, uh, the the right timing for things. This uh, similarly is parisanyuta. What's the group that we're that we're with? Yeah, um, uh, are we uh, uh, with people that we know, people we don't know? Are we in a, a following role, a leading role? Are we in a, a teaching role or a student role? Or are we are we um, say uh, there for practical purposes? Are we there for for a holiday or entertainment? You know, what's the connection that we have with the, the people that we're with? So it's a, a way of, in a sense, stepping out of our own preoccupations or our, our own habits and a sense of, well, uh, who, who am I with? What needs to be said here? What, what's the, the connection between us? And that uh, is a, um, say a way of expanding 
that sense of uh, of attunement to the time, the place, the, the situation, and uh, and a part of that can also be. I think we were talking the other day about about not knowing. That's what I think we were talking about. <laughs> so um, a part of parisanyuta is when you don't know how to relate to a group. Like, well, what what should I say here? <laughs> or or who who are these people? Or what's what's the right thing to do in this situation? So. Um, that uh, allowing oneself to to not know, and it also going back to mindfulness of awkward feeling of like, oh, I'm not quite sure uh, how I should relate to this. That readiness to to be with uh, an, in an unknown situation, not, not quite sure what's the best way to relate or what, what's appropriate. That's to anyway mindfully be aware of that, knowing that you don't know and not, not being sure what's the best way. That's also a that's not a weakness. It's uh, I would say it's part of Skillfully attuning to the to the situation that we're in. So, any questions, thoughts on parisanyuta? Knowing this groupness, and well, the last one is pugalanyuta. So, a pugala is a person, and so that there's a Pali word for a person. So, not just knowing the group that you're that you're with, like you're you're um, in a schoolroom, or you're in a hospital ward, or you're supposed to be the doctor, or you're supposed to be the patient. Um, uh, the uh, and fitting in with a particular group. So, pugalanyuta is uh, uh, appreciating the characteristics of of one other individual person. So, pugalanyuta. This means knowing the character and role of individual people. It's something of a subset of the previous group. When we consider distinctive differences between others and take those into account, when we contemplate someone's temperament, abilities and shortcomings, when we recollect our past experiences of communicating with that person, all this is to have developed Pugalanyuta. This skill also guides us to assess whether someone might be reliable as a friend or as a business partner, how they might fare in the monastic life, how they might handle, for example, a leadership role or a, a student role, uh, how it would be best to relate to them. Lastly, it can, be a reliable, it can reliably guide us to communicate skillfully with another person, whether to praise them or criticize, whether to advise them or ask them questions. So uh, again, that, uh, uh, that's the sense of tuning into you know, who you're with, what's, what's, uh, why are you together, and what's, what's the situation. Um, uh, and uh, what the, the characteristics of that particular person are, you know, the, if they are someone that um, that you know well or you don't know well, someone that you have a, a painful history with, or someone that you have been very close to, um, you know, in a warm and friendly way. Um, uh, if it, there's a, um, uh, I'd say within the monastery, a job that needs to be done, you're thinking about, okay, well, uh, this person, they, they just finished that that role. You know, would they be good at this particular job? Is this a kind of a skill that they have? Would that be a good fit or not? So there's a in, in monastic life, particularly uh, living in community. There's a lot of, especially if you're in a in a responsible role. There's a lot of pugilanita, kind of uh, just sort of appreciating people's characteristics. Also, not not pigeonholing people, saying, oh, that you know, this person they should be good at this, or therefore they should be they're matched to that particular role. Or, you know, judging a person in a particular way and then fixing uh, your that sort of uh, that judgment as a, a rigid um, standard, but also um, to have that uh, again an appreciation of uncertainty. With well, 
this might be a good fit or it might not might not be a good fit. Well, let's just try it and see what happens. Okay, put them in, put them in charge and see what they do with it, or you know, let them have responsibility for that and see whether uh, whether it's a good result or not. And uh, so uh, uh, again, Lumpo Cha, Lumpo Sumato, in in uh, their leadership of communities, they're very very good at uh, letting people um, take responsibility for different things, whether it was. Um, uh, cleaning things, building things, looking after being a, a, an attendant, uh, bowl washing or rope sewing or um, giving guidance to, to lay people or, or dealing with with, for, uh, with foreigners and and uh, just letting people have a, a chance to, to try their skill. Um, so it's also uh, part of uh, Pugalanyuta is uh, that um, again, along with not judging people or putting people into pigeonholes, it's also um, part of it is not trying to control everybody, or the feeling that you know you are um, you want people to be a certain way in order for you to feel comfortable. But uh, uh, I think, as we were saying yesterday, letting people be who they are and to to function through that those particular qualities of personality and character. And I was giving that example of the the great arahants in the Gosinga forest. Uh, the um, that uh, uh, say letting letting people um, they have a, a bit of a free hand, and then watching how things work out. That uh, someone might not be particularly good at a particular uh, at a certain job, but they might really enjoy it. Okay, well, <laughs> this hasn't worked out in the most efficient way, but you know I've never seen him look so happy. So okay, that's uh, something to bear in mind. So uh, maybe that isn't done quite so efficiently. But uh, they, they really enjoy it, and other people appreciate them looking after it. So, okay, let's you know, let's go with that. And so that that uh, you know, appreciation of you know, both the, uh, the individual and then the, the, the group situation, these Parisanyuta and Pugalanyuta, is uh, a lot of, of the aspects of community life, whether you're a layperson or a monastic and, and living together. We draw upon the, well, ideally, we draw upon those skills. <laughs> <laughs> on a very regular basis to uh, you know, appreciate where where people are at. Also giving people a chance, uh, uh, giving each other the space to, to develop our own skills, our own interest, and to, to find uh, ways that we can, we can function effectively in the world and, and also contribute to, to community life. So that's the <coughs> Pugalanyuta. Uh, is that, that's the seventh of that list of seven. Questions, comments? There's, a, uh, I think, a whole book of the Abhidhamma called the Pugala Panyati, which is the, um, I think the translation is, is something like the discrimination of human types. And it's a kind of personality profiles of the different kinds of characters. I've never studied Abhidhamma in, uh, uh, to any extent at all, really, but uh, uh, there's, you, you do come across references uh, uh, and, or, uh, say, things where they, they quote the Pugala Panyati in different human characters. And, and so uh, if you are interested in that, uh, how the, within the, the Pali tradition that different character types are distinguished, um, then you can look at the Pugala Panyati um, uh, I, the, the, the only one I can remember off the top of my head of that is that 
uh, a, a description of a particular character was the kind of person who digs a hole and climbs into it and then complains that they can't get anywhere. <laughs> so there's a quite earthy, literally kind of pun, pun intended, you know, quite earthy descriptions. So they kind of, uh, I thought, okay, that's... <laughs> then they dig the hole, they climb into it, and then blame the, blame the world for, for creating, uh, keeping them trapped, and that kind of thing. Yes, and the character, so, Alex. Just wondering how these characteristics relate sort of the okay with like neurodivergent people. Like like because people with all sorts of these sort of neurodivergences may struggle in certain aspects, uh, with awareness of people and, and stuff. So I was just wondering because you seem like a good person to be spotted that. Yeah, there, there, there's a certain amount of matchup. I mean, there's sort of ways of describing different human traits and, and qualities. They sort of vary over time. You know, every few decades, there's a different way of categorizing different different types. But uh, yeah, there, I think there's a certain amount of correspondence because people in two and a half thousand years, people haven't changed that much, <laughs> and so um, that. Um, uh, uh, I think it's one of the things is uh, that that does come across is that um, the, there's a there is a divergence of different characteristics, different personality types. But you, there isn't a, a, a kind of a strict definition of you know one being better than another, one is worse than another. But so this is this is a format that that you that you that you have to work with, or you might you might need to work with, and. And looking at the the strengths and weaknesses, or the the obstacles that uh, and the uh, that that uh, can come with those particular characteristics, but it is always uh, the the kind of uh, the important thing is the the attitude with which we work with those conditions, and that we can we can have a, like in what might be seen as a a really fortunate set of characteristics, but then be, be a really obnoxious person on account of that. <laughs> That, uh, or you can have uh, uh, characteristics that seem quite challenging or an obstacle, um, but then out of uh, having a good heart and a, and a skillful attitude, then um, those, those um, seemingly uh, obstructive qualities can be, uh, can be recognized as basically insignificant because they don't hinder you being a good person or, or you know, practicing Dhamma and so on. So that um, that uh, uh, yeah that that kind of um, different, slightly different way of looking at it that could whether someone's very intelligent or not very intelligent is in a way a bit beside the point. It's like well, you know, what do they do with that? <laughs> How do they do? They, do they use uh, that situation to cultivate what is wholesome and let go of what is unwholesome? Uh, that kind of thing. But yeah, if you if you look up in the uh, the Abhidhamma books, uh, Pugala Panyati, the, the discrimination of human types, I think uh, it might have been one of the ones that Bhikkhu, Bhikkhu Nyanamoli translated. I'm not absolutely sure, but um, there there is an English translation of that, one of the, uh, the of the Abhidhamma, so that uh, you can probably seek it out in the library. The questions, thoughts.
These seven kinds of knowledge are known as the sapurisa dhamma, the qualities of a, well, a well-rounded person. I find these qualities are very valuable in many situations, family get-togethers, on the London Underground, in the monastery, everywhere. All of these are the result of developing mindfulness and full awareness and wise reflection. If we nurture these seven sapurisa dhamma, they actively deprive ignorance, avijja, of its fuel. They support the development of the Noble Eightfold Path and thereby open up that fourth exit point from the destructive, addictive cycle well before it has begun. There's an old Alcoholics Anonymous saying that if you sit in a barber's chair long enough, you'll eventually get your hair cut. There's many, many varieties of that. It's like if you, uh, if you spend long enough in a bar, you're, in, you, you're going to wind up having a drink or... Um, and so on. If you go to enough parties, you'll you'll, you'll end up uh, having uh, some kind of relationship. Uh, but uh, so this this area really relates to that. Um, this means that if you go to visit pubs and bars often enough, sooner or later you'll end up having a drink. So don't go near the pub. If you don't want a haircut, get out of the barber's chair. If we don't want to put ourselves in the position of temptation. Uh, we will not slip. So, if we don't put ourselves in the position of temptation, we will not slip up and tumble tail over tea kettle, or head over heels, and make that sudden turn, quote unquote, the fall. The, the catastrophe means a, a sudden turn or a fall. Is a, the uh, the literal etymology of uh, catas- catastro- uh, catastrophe, catastroph uh, in from Greek, trophine the fall or undergo the the catastrophe of dependent origination, ending up in the crumpled heap of Sokoparideva Dukkha Dominas Upayasa, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. This fourth exit point is about good friends and skillful living, the not climbing into the barber's chair, quote-unquote, so that there is no fuel to power the turning of the wheel of becoming. This is how it operates before link number one and provides a wholesome and beneficial basis for our life. Though once again, this isn't a, so a fixed and so classical interpretation, uh, but uh, in reflecting on this, I, I felt that's it's a, a very very significant point. And how you have these these key teachings, like uh, in the Mangala Sutta, Asevana Chabalana, not to associate with the, with the, with uh, the foolish, but to associate with the wise. This is the highest blessing. Um, and uh, the, uh, the the dialogue between the Buddha and Venerable Ananda, when Ananda says um, that spiritual friendship is half of the holy life, and the Buddha says, no, it's not half the holy life; it's the whole of the holy life, Ananda. Um, and so that, and again, why monasteries exist is a sort of <laughs> mutual support situation where the, we come together to to uh, uh, support the, the the most helpful and liberating qualities within ourselves, and so. Um, it's in a way because of this principle of spending time around good people and, and that to encourage the, the development of the of the best in us. It's all about trying to deprive ignorance of its fuel, so that we, we set the conditions in place, make it as as um, as uh, say uh, optimally uh, supportive to spiritual practice. That's why the Buddha established monasteries and the the uh, monastic training the, the the, the five precepts, the eight precepts for, for the lay community, he set those structures up in order to help us to, to do the best we can in this, uh, uh, this human life of ours 
and so that uh, all of that, like regular taking the refuges and the precepts, uh, living in monasteries, coming to visit monasteries, spending time in monasteries, uh, taking uh, ordination, temporary ordination or long-term ordination, you know, these are all ways to keep the the uh, avija engine away from the petrol pump, <laughs> keeping the, the fuel away from that uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 avija engine, uh, and so that we are setting the conditions as as much uh, as is possible. We set the conditions in place to support the development of, of the wholesome and to to uh, say. Uh, obstruct the, the development of, of the unwholesome. Any questions, thoughts? That's the end of that chapter. Silence. Okay, so I'll continue. So the last chapter um, of the of the main part of the book is called Just This. This is chapter 8. We bring our attention to the experience of the present reality. We open our heart to this day. A day can feel like a really long time or a short time. Even five seconds can seem like a really long time. Our perceptions of time are subjective. Whether something feels like a long time or a short time is up to the attitude of this mind. The next section is called Bhava, the drug of choice. The more the heart is entangled in the feeling of becoming, the less time there seems to be. So the word bhava, or becoming, is important to understand. The more the heart is entangled with becoming, the more our life is an experience of continual pressure. It might be an exciting pressure, but it's still a stressful feature nonetheless. It forms around an attitude of me trying to get somewhere else, a feeling that I I'm on my way to this other thing. It might be something that we're attracted to, something that we want, something that we're afraid of, something that we feel a duty to engage with, something that is irritating. Any of these can be an object of becoming. Attraction, aversion, fear, duty, all of these make the heart very crowded. Yet most of us are comprehensively addicted to the sense of being and identity that we get from all of that. The pleasant, the painful, the comic and the tragic doesn't matter as long as it brings a sense of defined being, me being something. Investigate this feeling. As we feel ourselves being pulled or pushed towards the next thing, we ask ourselves, where am I going? Who's trying to get there? We might discover that even while we're walking in a park, there's the feeling of, I'm getting somewhere regardless of the fact that it's just around a lake, in order to walk back again to where we began. Notice that sensation of me getting somewhere. So this uh, is talking about bhava, and uh, uh, one of the the, the, uh, the points I'd like to, to highlight is that just after the Buddha's enlightenment, it was... Uh, reflecting on the, the uh, ubiquitous nature of bhava, uh, that after the Buddha's enlightenment, this, there's this, um, it's this internal reflection is recorded in the in the in the uh, Vinaya text that's describing that he's, he realizes you know, all the, the beings of the world are they they are addicted to to becoming they they love 
becoming, they, they relish becoming, but what they relish, what they love, brings pain. Yeah, and, uh, and so uh, this holy life is lived for the, for the ending of suffering, and his, uh, on account of appreciating that sense of, uh, of uh, what was apparently like a universal addiction to, to becoming, loving existence, loving that sense of being, relishing that, being atta- attached to that, uh, then his feeling is there's no point trying to, to teach, there's no point trying to... Uh, it's like a, in a, a world full of addict, addicts, you're the only person who's not on the drug. So, you know, where do you start? <laughs> it's like you know, a billion... Uh, well, there wouldn't have been a billion people alive in the world, probably in the Buddha's time, but many, you know, quite a, a few a few millions or hundreds of millions. You know, so that feeling of where would you start? This is, this is hopeless. I, this... This is this is everywhere, and it, so it was that recognition of being caught in that uh, that love of defined existence. And again, it's not necessarily around something positive or delightful. It can be around wanting uh, revenge or wanting to have a position in the group or uh, wanting to uh, or not being able to let go of, of a particular uh, wrong that's been done to us. You know, it doesn't have to be pleasant to be a giving us a a, um, a sense of defined being, like a, an unrequited, uh, yeah, something that's been, some wrong that's been done to us that we we want we want to revenge, or someone who's broken our heart, or someone who's who's treated us badly, is equally good as something that is uh, you know, that you're proud of, or it's a great achievement, or that's something that you want to uh, to be seen as. So. That uh, a defined sense of being, it, it can be a, any one of a, of a vast variety of objects. So the word bhava, sometimes it's translated as, as being, sometimes as becoming, uh, and uh, sometimes as existence. Uh, there's, there's, many, there's different, different translators have rendered it in different ways. But uh, existence is, a, 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 in a way, a, um, a helpful word. Because it literally means to stand out from that which stands out. Exe meaning out. Uh, ex meaning out. Exit. <laughs> Fire exit. Ex means out. And then uh, stance or stance is to stand. It comes from the um, the, the Latin uh, for to stand. So that's that which is standing out. So that that sense of being apparent or or, or visible, defined. That's uh, that. So uh, even though we might think. Uh, existence or being is of an intrinsic good, or that being or existence is, is synonymous with, with, with life and reality and goodness. In terms of Buddhist philosophy, that um, the, the Buddha took a slightly different uh, angle because he could see that uh, whereas in Vedanta, being, consciousness, bliss, satchit ananda, was sort of taken as the, the characteristics of, of ultimate reality, then the Buddha was saying, well, actually. <laughs> If you look closely, the sense of being or existence, defined identity, that there's there's a, um, a limitation there. There's a, there's a um, uh, there's dukkha that's wrapped up in that, and so um, and then that insight that he had just after the enlightenment that uh, all the all the beings of the world they, they they only know becoming, they relish becoming, they they are addicted to becoming, but. Um, uh, uh, what, but what they're addicted to, what, they're, what they relish, uh, uh, brings fear, and what they fear is pain. So that he could see that attachment to defined being 
attachment to being something that was uh, right there was a cause of fear and uh, a fear of, of pain and because the more there is a, an I the more there is an other and that other causes a, a threat to the to the I and there's a one of the Upanishads um, the Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad um, that was looking up the other day <laughs> the, the rough synopsis of the, the beginning of it is a bit more flowery and complicated but the the the, the brief version of the, the opening of that Upanishad is it says originally in the mind of the absolute uh, originally there was just the mind of the absolute uh, in the infinite void and then in the mind of the absolute there arose the thought I am with the, the thought I am there arose fear and following that fear, there arose desire. So the I am creates another, and then the fear of feeling a threat from the other, and then a desire to get hold of something that's going to, to keep that threat away. So uh, that's uh, it's uh, in that particular scripture a way of describing the sort of how the universe comes into being. But also, I feel it's a really good description of what happens in our minds when we meditate. <laughs> as soon as there's an I am. Then there's a, as soon as there's an I, then there's an other, and then the mind starts to seek for something to, to for the, uh, the I to protect itself or distract itself, you know, something to, to get away from that vulnerable, uh, alienated, insecure I feeling. So that. Uh, 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 and it, I would say it's, it's not an uncommon experience where in those moments where there is, there, there's a letting go and there is a, the, the, the mind grasping at something like in, in meditation you can see your mind's been chasing after a, a, a noise that uh, we hear or a feeling in the body or an idea in, or a mood in the mind and it's recognized and it's let go of um, there can be a moment of, of relief because that that uh, that thing has been let go of, and there's a a certain sense of ah, that, the the kind of contrast to, to grasping, and there's a, a pleasant sense of letting go, the sigh of relief. But then, uh, 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 and again, I don't know if m- many of you have noticed this, but a, f- a few seconds after that letting go, that you can find the mind hunting for another thing to be, like. There must be something I'm supposed to be doing. Oh yeah, back to the breath. You know, go on to meditation, or or like, uh, oh yeah, there's this other uh, uh, problem I've got. I've still got to work that out. And it, and there's this mysterious chemistry whereby, even though you've just thought of another problem you've got to solve, another thing you've got to do, there's a there's a, a relief that goes, ah, phew, you know, I'm back to being me again. Who's got to do something? But that that this fear of undefined being. Uh, of like, what am I? Uh, that is uh, uh, often what we spend a lot of time and energy and effort and money <laughs> trying to get away from a fear of undefined being. Because psychologically, that's a death experience. What, what, what if I'm not that? If I don't, there isn't a me pushing against something or chasing after something. What am I? Uh, and that, that can be deeply disquieting. And um, so. Even remembering that you got fifty-four emails that you got to reply, you got to reply to the phew, yes, it's a thing for me to be, and, we, and then that that sense of 
of uh, even though it's a lot of work that is uh, is uh, in prospect, there's a relief that oh, I am this person who's got to answer all these emails, or I've got to to do this or be that, or I've got this this uh, insoluble problem that you know this difficulty that's never going to go away, or this this issue that's you know, that is um, yeah, a uh, it's up to me to 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 figure out, and so that. Um, that was one of the, uh, the, the kind of reasons the Buddha, uh, after his enlightenment, thought, you know, this is everywhere. <laughs> this kind of uh, love of defined being, it's everywhere. But then uh, the Brahma Sahampati came along and as we do the, the invitation for a Dhamma talk. It recounts that very incident where Brahma Sahampati picked up this thought in the Buddha's mind that uh, well, the newly enlightened Buddha is inclined towards solitude and not teaching. So, oh, the world will be lost. The world will, will be utterly lost. And so uh, Sampati beams down from the Brahma world and appears in front of the Buddha and says, please, for the sake of those who, who have a... There are some beings with lots of dust in their eyes and some beings with just a little dust in their eyes. And for the sake of those with just a little dust, please share the understanding that you have. And uh, it's a, a story many of us are familiar with, but uh, I feel it's... We're here because the Buddha then cast his vision around the world and realized, yeah, Sampati is, this Brahma deity is correct. There are beings with, with, uh, who are very entangled and, and uh, caught up, got a lot of dust in their eyes, but there are beings with just a little bit of dust in their eyes. And so for the sake of the, uh, the, the uh, uh, almost dust-free, then the Buddha uh, agreed to teach. And so we have uh, this whole... Uh, the whole Buddha Parisa and the whole uh, community and, and the Dhamma teaching, Dhamma Vinaya, that's come down over two and a half thousand years uh, today on account of that. So, but I think it's significant that his first thought was, "There's no point trying." <laughs> so it tells us this is a this is a, 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 a very dense quality of conditioning. This is a very strongly conditioned habit, and. In my own experience of, of Dhamma practice, this is something that's so helpful to get to know because to the habits of self-view and the ego, undefined being, it feels like death, a kind of ego death. Like, if I'm not that well, I'm like, ha <laughs> But to the, the heart itself, if, if there's a kind of passing through that curtain, <laughs> if there's a, if there, if there's a uh, that there isn't a, a kind of, Intimidation, or just seeking distraction, or switching off at that point. If there is that, uh, say, passing through that that habitual reaction, then uh, to the to the jitta itself, to the heart itself, that quality of undefined being is it has the the, the taste of freedom. That's a, a, there's a a delight in that. There's a quality of wonderment and, and delight. It's not. I, there's no sense of loss to the ego. It's a sense of loss. It's like a, a deposed tyrant uh, being booted out of uh, their their role of, of leadership. But to, to the heart itself, it's like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so glad that's uh, glad that's over. Or I don't have to to be limited or, or bound by that. So. It, um, uh, I, I often quote these bumper stickers you'd see in, in San Francisco Bay Area would have very philosophical bumper stickers and one of them was uh, something along the lines of 
Why be a whole person when you can be a brilliant wounded fragment? <laughs> that, uh, you know, that, that we can uh, uh, attach to our, our kind of brokenness or our problems or our, uh, um, our dukkha. Um, and that, that can be far more appealing, it's far more, far more defined edges than, uh, say, a feeling of, uh, of wholeness or um, a sense of, of uh, you know, a, uh, not defining ourselves around ego-centered perceptions, but uh, it, it can be far more attractive to, to identify with our, our pain and our problems. And, uh, it's a, it's a strange thing, but that can be a, a, a source of great satisfaction. Um, and I'm, not, I'm not putting that down, but it's, uh, it, it's, it is mysterious how you can kind of be proud of the terrible things that, that you've had to endure. It's like a kind of badge of honor of the, the painful things. And that beyond, but unconsciously seeing that's, that, that even though you know, maybe you're, you're doing your best to work with that, there's something that's saying, this is me, this defines me, this is what I am, I am I am this. And in the very effort to try and work with something, you've actually dramatized it and, and reified it. You made it rather than seeing through it and seeing its empty nature, that there's a, a way that that relishing of, of defined being, yeah, I am this, this is my problem, this is my big issue, then that uh, rather than working with it, you've, you've made it into uh, something that is you know, real and solid, and, and this is me. This is what etang mama eso hamasmi eso me ata. This is this is me. This is what I am. This is myself. Any thoughts, reflections on all of that? Okay. <clears throat> we can even observe the quality of becoming while sitting still in our own home as well as on a train or a plane, in the car, as well as in a meditation hall. Whether it's trying to get to a physical destination like Chiang Mai, or London, or Paris, or, get, or to get concentrated, the process and the energy is the same. We can watch the thoughts, creating possibilities of future activities, places, experiences. We can observe this quality of becoming through the mind attaching to any changing condition. If we bring attention to this, we find that there is a leaning into the imagined next moment. Quid nunc, what now, in Latin, is the ancient Latin way of expressing this feeling. What now? So that looking away from, from this to, to, to uh, anticipate or in, be drawn into expectation, anticipation of the, the next thing. In the suttas it says, Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. Bhava niroto nibbanang. That's uh, again in the Book of the Tens, uh, the, in the, the numerical discourses. Sutta number seven, if you, if you want to follow that up. This is a very short but powerful statement. If we interpret that as meaning that Nibbana is only realized when all conditions of the world and the mind have stopped, evaporated, life is going to be very difficult. If it meant, quote, the stopping of all action, unquote, we'd have to stop breathing, walking, talking. So that's obviously not a realistic interpretation. By saying Nibbāna is the cessation of becoming, it doesn't mean that we freeze in our tracks or that we stop the breath from entering and leaving the body, or even that we stop the flow of thought in order to realize Nibbāna. Rather, it's a change of attitude 
towards those transient conditions, the arising and passing of experience. It's the quality of non-entanglement with the experience of changing conditions, seeing their ownerless and insubstantial nature. It's the restfulness that comes from not, from not grasping, not clinging, not identifying with what is being experienced. So the, the cessation um, uh, is not just a thing, the, the stopping of a thing that has begun, but it's also the ending of the thingness, the, the mind, in a way, recognizing the transparency of the, the empty, um, say, uh, insubstantial nature of, of conditions. So there's a form, there's, there's an appearance, there's a, a shape that things have, like my hand, or this room, or uh, this book, uh, or you know, other people. So there's a shape, but that when we talk about cessation, it's recognizing, well, that's a shape, that's a form, but the, the, it's not giving it a, any kind of absolute substance. So when the, the Buddha gives a te- one of the, the most well-known teachings of his on, on emptiness, he talks about the empty nature of the five khandhas, and so the rupakanda, the material form, the body, he compares to a lump of foam on the river. So they're standing by the, uh, the river Ganges, I think, at Ayodhya, uh, Ayutthaya, in, uh, in India, and uh, so there was a, a lump of foam floating along the river. And the Buddha said, you see that lump of foam on the river? The rupa, uh, uh, material form, is just like that lump of foam. Then he explains Vedana, a sensation or feeling. So it's like when rain falls onto a, a pond then the, and the, the raindrops splash and there's a, a bubble forms as the, the raindrops hit the, hit the surface. The Vedana is just like a water bubble uh, that it... Uh, again, there's a shape, but there's no there's no substance. There's nothing solid there. And then uh, sanya uh, perception, he says, is like a, a mirage in the desert. If you're out in the desert and you can see a, a, a shape uh, in the in the air, you might see your know, palm trees or buildings. But uh, uh, that's a, an appearance. It's, it's just a formation of light. Um, but the there aren't really there isn't really a building there, or, or not in that spot. There is not really those palm trees or buildings in that particular place. It's a, a mirage is, is empty. There's a shape, but no substance. And then uh, sankara, mental formations, uh, thoughts, feelings, emotions, uh, imagination, and so on. He said that's like a, a, a banana plant. Like it's, a, a, there's, it's just a sheaf of leaves, like an onion or a, a leek. There's no heartwood, there's no core, so that you peel away the leaves and there's no, no central trunk. So he said, Sankaras are like a, a banana plant, like a plantain. And then the last one, Vinyana, he said, is like a conjuring trick, like a magician performing a, a conjuring trick. It looks like there's some magic being done, but it's just a, a, it's just a trick. It's just a, a, an appearance, a seeming. So with uh, nib- uh, Nibbana is the cessation of becoming. It's, um, it's the, the mind not being caught into that apparent substantiality or that, that the, the flow of a particular uh, event and attaching to, oh, when this is over then, or, um, or that uh, or, you know, this is something that is, is real and solid. So that that, um, that peacefulness, uh, Nibbana, is the, the peaceful quality of the mind knowing that uh, essentially the Dhamma is always here, that things are not going to be more real when that changes or that... Uh, this has come to an end, or that this particular 
thing, uh, either hoping that it'll stay because it's pleasant or hoping that it'll go because it's unpleasant, but rather that the, the thingness or the solidity, the substantiality of, of any perception, any condition of, the, uh, of the, the, the natural world, physical or mental, is seeing the, the empty, insubstantial, transparent nature. So it's a, it's a uh, in this respect, cessation or emptiness, sunyata, is related to, it's not related to absence so much as transparency, if that makes sense. Question actually. Sure. Yeah. It's um, about the difference between uh, Bhava Naroda and Vipava. Or Vipava? Vipava, yeah. Because yeah. um, quite often, I think in that one of those sutras it says something like, um, you know, the noble disciple, he doesn't uh, let go of becoming, but he doesn't delight in non becoming. And at the same time, uh, obviously, uh, the cessation of becoming is. is uh, the mm-hmm. So just that, what was it? What's the difference between? <laughs> well, we bow with I mean, it's a kind of craving. So it's like longing for things, a particular thing to end. So it's the desire for um, for something to to not be, to to not so like to not feel, to not be for something to to get rid of something. So that it's the um, in that the the mind is is. In giving a, a, a sense of solidity, like wanting these thoughts to stop, or wanting to um, to get away from a, an uncomfortable situation, like, that's the vibhavatanha. So it's saying these these thoughts are real and solid, and, and when they, if only they'd stop, if only I could switch them off, then I would be happy. So it's like in a way, you're, the mind is reifying. It's giving those the thoughts or the situation. Uh, a solidity and then a, a hope that oh, when the, I want this to switch off, I want to get rid of this uh, because this is an intrusion or this is a burden or this is stressful and if the, this wasn't here then I would be happy. So it's making the, those thoughts or those uh, feelings or perceptions or uh, emotions into uh, a, a, sort of a substantial act, or acts, uh, actual presence. So Bhava Niroda, the cessation of becoming, is where the, the mind has let go of that. It is not identified with that with that condition. It's like it's um, it's seeing the empty nature of those those thoughts rather than wanting happiness by their absence, or wanting them to go away. It's seeing that well, these are just thoughts. I mean, how could these possibly be anything substantial or real? There's there's no thing there. So that um, the Bhavani uh, Rodha uh, that uh, the, the mind isn't investing that particular uh, condition with uh, um, uh, there's no identification it's not giving any substantiality or any reality it's just, oh, it's, it's just a thought, it's just a sound it's just an emotion, it's just a, a mood whether it's here or not that, how could that really obstruct the, the, the Dhamma, how could that really be burdensome uh, so it's, it's a very different quality it's not a. It's not a kind of bawa niroda. Is not a. It's not a kind of craving. It's a change of uh, of attitude in relationship to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Does that make sense? Okay.
The next section is called Watching a World Arise. As we look about us in life, we can discover, oh, the woman in the next seat, who I thought was a primary school teacher, is actually a famous film director. Or that fellow who I met in the park, who I was sure was a scientist, turns out he's a sculptor. Uh, we can watch our, how our version of the world comes into being. So this is often uh, something that um, uh, people experience at the end of a retreat, particularly if they, they've been doing a um, like a 10-day retreat together with uh, quite a few people that they don't know. During the retreat, oftentimes people are you know, <laughs> assigning roles to other folks and they kind of assume that they kind of guess their name or their nationality or their... their, their um, uh, their livelihood, and so this is a, a, a an abbreviated version of <laughs> that kind of a, a discovery that people make. Oh my goodness! You know this this person that uh, I completely misread who they were. I thought she's definitely Swiss. I mean, she really looks Swiss, and you find out she's got a strong Glaswegian accent. You know, she's from Glasgow. Oh, oh. <laughs> so that that. Uh, the way that we we create each other and ascribe roles just on, on um, passing perceptions. That we can watch how our version our version of the world comes into being. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just this. Every day there's a great opportunity to see a world being born, seeing how we judge our own life, our our personality, and judge the lives of others. We can watch those patterns, those perceptions, springing up and taking shape and dissolving. The senses, contact and feelings arise. If we're able to recognize that the world is actually, quote, my version of the world, then we're able to be much more sensitive and spacious in the way we relate to others. In one very significant teaching, the Buddha said, that whereby one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world, that is called the world in this Dhamma and discipline. And what is the means whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world? It is the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. So the, and those two terms, a perceiver of the world is loka sanyi. Sanya is perception, loka is the world. And a, a conceiver of the world is loka mani. Mana is conceit, conceiving. Lokamani, a conceiver of the world. So that's a, a teaching I quote very often because it's the, one of the, the, the habits of, of uh, attachment and becoming and so on is that we assume that the world that we experience is the world everyone else is experiencing. And so and we, we tend to make that uh, uh, as an, unco- an unconscious judgment. And then when people act in their own ways, we, we get confused or irritated. Or, or how can he do that? Or, what, what did she do? Why did she do that? Yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. It's only crazy or ridiculous most often because it doesn't fit in with our particular habits or perceptions because we're assuming that everybody else is seeing the same world that we do. But uh, if we recognize that what we each experience is not the world, it's a world. <laughs> it's the, the our mind's version of the world in this moment, according to you know, the conditioning of, of this mind, these these these, uh, these uh, perceptual systems, the, the the language that we speak, the, our, our personal history, and so on and so forth. So, if we remember that what is experienced here is just this mind's version of the world, then it's much closer to the surface. Well, of course, 
uh, you know, other people see a different world. And a very simple uh, uh, way of demonstrating this is, uh, I, I'm sitting here, and I say, which way is my, uh, my finger pointing? And I would say, it's pointing to the left. Where, sitting from where you are, we would say either it's pointing away from me, or it's pointing towards me, <laughs> or it's pointing to, to the right. Uh, from where I am, it's, it's clearly pointing to the left, but because geographically we're sitting in different places, then we see a different picture. Um, so when we appreciate that, that uh, we uh, are experiencing one version of the world, then that, uh, and that's seen with wisdom, then their recognition, well, of course, other people are going to see things differently. They're going to have different priorities, different concerns, different interests. Naturally, how could it not be that way? And so on account of that, then we find we've got much more space for each other. We can, we can accommodate each other. If we're assuming everyone should think like me, and, and if they don't think like me, then they're deluded or, or wrong, then, uh, uh, and then we're creating a lot of dukkha for ourselves and, and probably the people around us. There, there was a, a famous, um, when Ajahn Jayasaro was the abbot at uh, Wat Pananachat for about five years, one of the monks there was a, a fairly skilled at Photoshop and they, they had a group photograph of the, the monastic community, and he put Ajahn Jayasaro's head onto the bodies of all the other monks and novices in the, in the photograph, and captioned it, the perfect monastery. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone thinks like me, so it must be, it must be perfect. So it was a kind of a comment on, <laughs> sort of a, a, dharmic, a dharmic commentary on uh, how we can be. We can see how those perceptions arise and how the mind can give them value. How do we feel about other people? The perception of scientist has one feeling, sculptor has another feeling. We create each other. We produce different judgments and perceptions out of habit, out of our conditioning, out of our social situation. We tend to believe our perceptions as absolutely true. But we can be aware that this is a creation or a naming that the mind has put upon perceptions of the present. As Ajahn Chah put it, we determine things into existence. This awareness gives a great freedom to our own heart, and it gives great freedom to others as well. The kindest thing that you can do for other people is not to create them. Just as the kindest thing that we can do for ourselves is not to create this person that we think that we are either. This might sound a bit strange, but on reflection, perhaps it makes some sense. It's a great relief not to be created into a particular role. There's a friend of the Sangha in California who's quadriplegic in a wheelchair, and he once told me uh, that one of the great happinesses in his life was when people would talk to him and not, quote, not talk to the chair, unquote. So as we receive the world into our hearts and we, and we watch it come into being each moment, a useful exercise in developing compassion, kindness, and harmonious relationships is not to create people. He also, this, uh, his name is uh, Daniel Barnes, and uh, he also said that uh, people like himself who, uh, who uh, have to go about in a wheelchair, he said uh, that they're, uh, the, uh, one of the terms they use for, 
for the more mobile population is the uh, is TABs, temporarily able-bodied. <laughs> so we are we are TABs, temporarily able-bodied. <laughs> it was a very skillful way of relating to your own uh, habitual assumptions about life. So does that make sense? It's about not creating yourself, not creating others. It's about you know, we, we make a judgment, we, we uh, assess some ourselves or someone else in a particular way, and then we carry that around. And so if we, if we are creating each other, then when we meet or we have to engage or work together or talk together, then uh, the more that the mind is you know, sort of locked onto its own assumptions and preconceptions, then you don't actually see the other person. You're, you're just talking to your projection about them. And, and they're probably doing the same to you, so you don't have a dialogue, you actually have two monologues sort of going, in, going past each other. That They're talking to their projection of you, and, and you're talking to your projection of them. So there isn't really a communication, a communion, but rather it's a, the air is being filled with words, <laughs> but there isn't really a, a meeting, a connection. And so that when we can recognize that habit, and leave it aside, not make assumptions about each other, but really be mindful and attuned to each each present experience, then, yeah, of course, our bodies don't suddenly transform or our faces drop off and such like, uh, but the, the, still the, the basic physical perceptions are there, but we're not um, coming from a place of assumption or you know, presumption about each other. And we are much more able to attune and adapt all those sapurisa qualities, so the way we're able to attune to the time, the place, the situation, who we're with, and we're not always feeling like we've got to, we don't know what we're doing, or I'm in charge, or or, um, I know what's going on here. (laughs) But uh, you don't make those presumptions, but there's rather uh, an openness, and there's a... a, uh, a sensitivity that's that's based on on a genuine quality of mindfulness and, and wisdom, mindfulness and full awareness. Also, speaking of the world coming into being, one of the examples I often give about that was um, I'd noticed when uh, I would begin. Uh, I didn't really uh, going to to my secondary school was very traumatic. So <laughs> I was going, I didn't really notice it there because it was going from a junior school where you're one of the senior pupils to to being in a, the 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 lower classes of a of a, um, a boys boarding school. Uh, I was a day pupil, but it was a boarding school, and um, where you're very junior, there's a very very distinct pecking order, and, and that that was a and I was ten when I started at secondary school, just had my tenth birthday. And uh, so that I was kind of in a state of shock when uh, that particular change from one environment to, uh, to another came about. But I did notice it when I I, um, I went to university, went to, to college in London, and and a sense of I don't know anybody here. I don't know the buildings. I don't know the, who the teachers are. I you know, I don't know anything, and that. And I saw how over the period of about six weeks or a couple of months that you get, you get to know your way around the campus, you get to know who the people are, you get to... Uh, and then watching this sense of, oh, 
in two months ago, none of this was known to me. And now I've got this whole kind of map. <laughs> and there's the, these different people are categorized. And you know, this, one's, this one's interesting, this one's not interesting. I, I'm involved with that one, I'm not involved with that one. And, uh, and that was really uh, striking to me. Like, look, look at that. I didn't have a, any, any sense of the value system or, or, or where, how things were arranged. And now it's this world that I know about. You know? <laughs> it's, a, it's familiar. And so when I arrived at Wat Panachat, so I was, uh, I was 18 when I started at, at, at college, and then I just had graduated in summer of 77, and then was at, came into Wat Panachat in January of 78. So it wasn't that long after. So I thought, okay, this is a similar situation. I don't know anybody. I don't know anything about Buddhism. I've never read a Buddhist book. Uh, I don't know anything about monasteries or rules. And so uh, this little kind of flag went up. That, okay, now this is a really good opportunity to once again watch a world come into being. Because you know, right now you don't know anything. It's a completely, basically a completely blank slate. I literally had never read a Buddhist book. Um, before I, I walked in the, the, the monastery gate and uh, sort of got, got involved with this. So it's like, you don't know anything. Um, and so then I'm watching that, that value system take shape over the next sort of, six weeks, couple of months, three months. And so you know, after a few months, it's like, well, this Arjuna is really good, that Arjuna is not so good. And yeah, we're Mahanikaya, they're Dhammayut. And we have the forest tradition, they're the city monks. And this whole kind of... Uh, but I, I made a clear... So a clear, conscious uh, resolution, like, okay, this is going to be another world that comes into being. Watch how that takes shape, and how solid and, and, and real this all seems. But don't forget that three months ago, you didn't know anything. <laughs> this is all just uh, you know, like marks on a whiteboard or a blackboard. You know, so, but uh, yeah, this is all an acquired value system, and that this is something that is it's a world that's coming into being, it, it's uh, it's no more real or substantial than the world of your college life and your, physio- your physiology and psychology lecturers and such like, and so that that uh, was a uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was really helpful uh, over the years to keep a perspective on both being you know, sincerely uh, involved and committed to this life, but also remembering you know, a year ago you didn't know, you didn't know about any of these ajans, you never heard of Ajahn Chah. Never heard of Theravada or Mahayana. I thought the Buddha was Chinese for the um, first few months I was there. I just had, hadn't figured out that the Buddha was was uh, from India. But uh, I was cleaning the shrine the day before the observance day. I thought it's funny all these Buddha images; they look Indian. And they said, "Well, that's because well, the Buddha was from Nepal, and uh, so he was. That's why they look Indian." And I said, well, no, no, he's from China. Everyone knows the Buddha was from China. <laughs> so I was ready to argue the point and be an expert, even though I, I was totally wrong. But uh, so it was. It was over the years. It was really, really helpful because it, it uh, that sense of this is all an uh, assumed reality. It's determined into existence, and the value system of Theravada or Mahayana or this Ajahn versus that Ajahn. These are the these are, these are what you do. These are what you don't do. Um, this is a good monk, this is a bad monk. <laughs> All of that, just saying, you know, six months ago, none of this had any meaning. This, this, this wasn't uh, 
This world didn't exist. Now it exists. So in a, a very helpful way, it kept uh, all of that in context. It was a way of, of keeping a perspective on that so that you're living with it in, in using these conditions, the traditions and forms and structures uh, of this life in a sincere way, but you're also remembering this is all just invented. And then so a lot of uh, Ajahn Chah's teachings the, where he would speak about that kind of thing, it, it made perfect sense to me. Like, you know, Theravada Buddhism is determined into existence. You know, he would sit in a, a give a Dhamma talk and he'd say, there aren't really any people here. There's no women, there's no men, there's no nuns, there's no monks, there's no monastics, there's no, no lay people here. These are just formations. And, uh, and so uh, I could really resonate with that. Think, yeah, that's, we, it's all determined into existence. And that uh, having that conscious recollection of, oh, that this value system has come into being and then uh, and say, you know, a year ago none of these words would have made sense <laughs> and, uh, and, and and now it's these, got this distinct flavor, these distinct qualities but it kept uh, kept it in focus kept the quality of, of um, the fundamentally empty nature of things in, in perspective So I'll just finish, I'll just read to the end of this section here. So as we receive the world into our hearts, we watch it come into being each moment. A useful exercise in developing compassion, kindness and harmonious relationships is not to create people. This doesn't mean that when your grandchildren come running through the door saying they're happy to see you, you tell them that they don't exist. If a child is five years old and Granny tells her that she's not real, that child will probably think that Buddhism isn't uh, Buddhism is no good for Granny. <laughs> the practice being spoken of here, people do ask those kind of questions. Like, Ajahn, I have this great insight into anatta. So, how do I go back to my family? You know, how do I talk to them? You know, if I know there's, there's nobody here, there's nobody there. <laughs> what do I do? And so. Yeah, that, that's not uncommon that people ask those kind of questions. They have a profound insight, and I say, "Well, just play along with it. You know, just be, <laughs> be be yourself." And if your five-year-old grand, grandchild says, "Hello, Granny," don't say, "Actually, fundamentally, you you're not there, and neither am I." It's not going to it's not going to fly. But uh, you think Granny has gone stupid. So the practice being spoken of here is not the picking up of some philosophical idea and then brandishing it as a concept to identify with, an achievement or self-protection. Rather, it is expanding the view. It's relaxing expectations and projections and opening the heart to the fullness of the present reality. If we make the effort not to create each other, we can see what the effect of that is. Be attentive attuned to the present reality. We then let our words and actions and feelings be guided by that attunement. I encourage us all to look into our hearts to see how this feels, the freedom of non-creation, the freedom of not judging others as being this or that, or ourselves, you know, wanting to be seen in particular ways, the freedom of not having to be someone special. I'd like to tell a story about one particular friend of the Sangha who used to visit Chithurst Monastery back in the early 80s. In those days, uh, the old Victorian house at Chithurst was a building site. The floors had only scraps of leftover carpet. People used to donate sort of offcuts of carpet. So there was a bit of a mishmash of, 
of carpet scraps which would cover the, the floorboards where the floors hadn't rotted away through dry rot so it was pretty pretty rough living the floors had only scraps of leftover carpet to cover them most of the tea mugs didn't have handles or had chips in the, the sides it was a pretty rough environment this friend of the sangha was a local woman who used to come and visit regularly she'd been married to the british ambassador to japan when she came to visit, she would sit down quite delicately on the scraps of carpet, sip her tea daintily from the chipped mug, and was obviously a very refined lady. One day she said, The reason I love to come to Chithurst is because here I can be a potato. <laughs> and that she, she did actually go to Cheltenham Ladies' College, so she did have an accent just like that. So. Uh, cut glass, Cheltenham Ladies College accent. And th that's exactly what she said. The, the reason I love to come to Chithurst is because here I can be a potato. And she really meant it. She didn't have to be the ambassador's wife or a gracious lady. She could just enjoy the company of good friends and sip her tea and not care that the cup was chipped or the place was covered in paint or plaster dust. What a delight not to have to be this thing this role, this identity. How joyful to be able to let that go. Unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed. So I'll leave it there for today.